Our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. <clears throat> so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to drink water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, 
Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. We're going to look at Jacob's well and what uh, happens at this well and the interaction that Jesus has with this woman concerning himself as being the giver of living water and, yes, even living water himself. We're going to look at his food and what his uh, description of doing the Father's will tells us about our need as Christians for true obedience to God's word and God's will. And then finally, we're going to look at the power of testimony. What happens when this woman shares her testimony with the town uh, is amazing. It's beautiful. And so uh, there's been a, a recent uh, request by um, my, my dad uh, to encourage us with testimony. And this, is ju- this just happened to be the reading that we're talking about today. It was already scheduled. Uh, so it, um, hundreds of years ago, it was determined that we were going to talk about John 4, during this year in Lent. So um, I want to I just encourage you that testimonies are powerful, and we're going to see that in great deta- detail in a little bit. So like I said, uh, the Bible uses imagery at one point, and then that imagery is expanded, it's matured, it's, it's refined, it takes on a slightly new flavors. Uh, for example, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it's described as a, a pinnacle of uh, a place, and yet that pinnacle uh, in the Garden of Eden, there's a river that runs through it. How many of you have ever dealt with water in any sort of plumbing fashion or with a hose? You may have seen, uh, this may be a new thing for you, maybe you haven't ever really considered it, water flows downhill, and if there's a river running through a place, that means there's some other place that's higher than that place where the water is coming from, right? So it's either a glacier or there's a mountain and the, the rains fall on the mountain, then they collect and form a stream. So Eden is not the pinnacle, but rather there is a place to go to uh, from Eden. Likewise, Eden has four rivers, which then over time in the scripture, the Bible develops that to speak of the four corners of the earth, which talks about reaching the ends of the earth with the gospel. From Eden, God desired to export his garden sanctuary to all of the earth. Adam and Eve were called to subdue the earth, uh, put it to use, take dominion over it, and multiply. And Jesus extends that idea. The Great Commission is an expansion of the dominion mandate. He says, go into all the world, preach the good news, heal the sick, etc., baptize them in the name of the Father, teach them to observe all of what I commanded you. And so the idea is that we have a little glimmer, and then it gets bigger and more beautiful, and uh, it's it's expanded. Uh, If you're ever watching a film, uh, 
filmmakers always use this technique. This is almost, you know, one of the the exclusive uh, visual ways that you can show someone where is a story going. So this passage has a type in the Old Testament, which we're going to look at really quickly. Sometimes in the New Testament, this structure is actually done in such a way that it's explicitly clear in that point for point, idea for idea, the New Testament passage mirrors an Old Testament account or an Old Testament passage. And so this uh, happens, uh, a great example is to read Genesis 1 and then 1 Corinthians 15. If you are familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, you might remember Paul says, describing the glory with which body uh, 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 items have bodies, whether it's animals. He says there's a glory of a fish, there's a glory of a animal, there's a glory of the heavenly bodies, there's a glory of the sun, the moon, the stars, etc., And he's describing the glory that will attend to our heavenly body, that is, our resurrected, glorified body, which we will have. Because he's he's solving some disputes in the Corinthian church about what the resurrection is going to look like. And he basically says, we don't know, but if you can imagine that the the glory that you have now, the the dignity that you have as the Imago Dei, the image bearer of God, the glory that you have then will be even greater. And so he parallelizes Genesis 1 to not hijack, but rather use that as the foundation for uh, promoting and extolling the hope that Christians have. That is, we believe that the resurrection, according to Paul, his description is the resurrection is the culmination of the work that God started in the creation. And so the creation, as glorious and beautiful as it was, uh, Paul is u- utilizing the narrative structure, idea for idea, with the days of creation, representing uh, them in 1 Corinthians 15, so as to say that the resurrection is glorious and beautiful, and it will be a wonderful thing. So this is a technique all throughout Scripture, and one of the, the ways to understand today's reading is to look at it in this fashion. So this reading today highlights the particulars of Christ's mercy to this woman. What Jesus did in speaking with this woman was beautiful, it was gracious, it was marvelous, and yet, both in the way that John the Gospel writer recorded it and the way that God orchestrated the events with his, with his sovereignty, he caused it to be a mirror of or a repetition or a representing of what happens at the well when Abraham sends his servant. So Abraham in Genesis, uh, I believe it's chapter, uh, we'll look in a second, uh, 24. In Genesis 24, Abraham has this mission. He's got a son and God commanded him to not let his son marry a woman of just any other tribe, but rather a woman of his kinsman, that is a Yahweh-worshipping woman. Let me tell you, spiritual sons and daughters, do not marry someone who is not a Yahweh worshiper. Don't marry from the other tribes. It's a it's a danger and a folly for you. And so Abraham sends his servant to go get a, a girl. Now, a lot of you wish you had a dad who had some servants. This that might not happen for you, but this is a special holy mission because it's important that the patriarch. Uh, transmit the faith to the next generation, the promised seed as it is, and Isaac is needing a bride. So he sends his servant uh, back to his kinsman, and his servant takes along gifts, and those gifts are, of course, 
describing graces that God has. And the servant shows up at a well. And this journey from from uh, the land of of Israel, where it wasn't called Israel at the time, but the land that was promised, the promised land where Abraham was, all the way back to the Chaldean area where his kinsmen were from and where they were living, was a very long journey. I don't know if you've ever seen on a map, but basically imagine Israel to somewhere in Saudi Arabia. I wouldn't want to walk that uh, stretch of land, uh, but the servant does, and he, of course, he has camels, and they have a team of people. They don't go, you don't go by yourself. The servant shows up with all of these gifts and finds Rebecca at a well, and he starts to tell the worth of Isaac. He starts to say how God has blessed Abraham, and, and Abraham has now had a son, and Abraham has given everything that he has to this son. Of course, this is describing the glory and worth of God the Father in bestowing the special call and role of redemption on Jesus Christ. And so here, this servant is telling this woman, Rebecca, about why she should come and marry this person. Now, uh, I don't know about you. I've never thought to marry someone I don't know what looks like, uh, who, who they look like. But look at what Rebecca re- does. She responds in faith, and she hears the word of the Lord in the word that the servant says and responds rightly and decides to go and follow after this guy. And uh, it, to me, this is an amazing step of faith. And she gets blessed by her father Bethuel and her brother Laban. Laban shows up as a troublemaker in a few chapters, if you know the stories. But she gets blessed, and here's how she gets blessed. Both Bethuel and Laban say, they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, so at one point this voice is the father and uh, is is the the son that he has. Our sister, uh, they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Notice, of course, in Galatians it says, and note he does not speak to offsprings, but rather offspring. This is a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. He says in the gospels that the gate of hell will not prevail against his work. This is fulfilled. And so we rightly know that they are prophesying concerning the offspring who Rebecca has down the line. And so this is a type and a foreshadowing of all of redemptive history. God the Father sent his Holy Spirit to woo and win a bride who would be a faithful bride for the Son of God. This is a foreshadowing. And we see that take place again in this passage. God sends Christ to obtain this bride. Also, it's not just the Holy Spirit who is sent to woo the church, but also Jesus Christ himself. And Yahweh's servant, as Isaiah tells us, is Jesus. And so we understand that Jesus goes on a long journey, just like this servant of Abraham's, uh, from Jerusalem to Samaria. I'm not sure if you're a, a geography buff, but it's about 20 miles at least, depending on where you place this city called Sychar. Uh, They don't know exactly where it is, but they have a very good idea. And it's at least 20 miles, and he probably did it in a day or a day and a half. Either way, I don't know about you, I'm no desert walker. I still wouldn't want to go on that journey. Even if it's 500 miles or 20 miles, I don't want to go through a journey in the desert. Uh, But he shows up at this well, and he meets this woman, a Samaritan woman. And Jews and Samaritans, as our reading says today, they have no fellowship. They're at enmity. They're a different religion. Remember, we talked about earlier 
the the different mountain on which they, on which they claimed was right to worship there it's a different system this would be like a jew and a palestinian getting together today or rather an israelite and a uh, israeli and a palestinian today or uh back if you know if you go back in various times in our country there were extremely worse race relations than there were today this would be like you know in the in Birmingham Alabama in 1962 a black and a white guy sitting down and having a bunch of coffee together and chatting about po- politics this is an unthinkable meeting this is an absolutely amazing thing that Jesus does and he goes and his first act of mercy to towards her is just to speak with her and then after that he asks her for some water this is him receiving hospitality and extending fellowship this is wonderful and this is glorious and so Jesus likewise comes and exposes that this woman is not unlike Rebecca. This is where the type varies. There's a variation on the theme. Uh, Rebecca was a pure virgin, and this woman was not. This woman had five husbands, and we know from the law of God that divorce and remarriage in this context, as well as today, is uh, a form of adultery. That's what Jesus says concerning why Moses gave them a special permission that that divorce and remarriage time and again like this is not healthy. This isn't how God desired it to be, Jesus says. And so he, instead of laying condemnation on her, which she duly deserved, gives her grace and forgiveness. And he says to her, although although he's going to give her grace and forgiveness, he wants to put his finger on the button first. So he prophesies towards her. Her Her experience in this passage is a picture of the unfaithful Israel, that time and again she played the harlot, divorcing her true husband Yahweh and going after other gods. And so this woman is a picture of the redemptive work that God did and foreshadowed also in the work of Hosea. If you've never read the book of Hosea, take some time this week. It's, uh, I think, 12 chapters. It's, It's wonderful. It's a beautiful book. It's one of my favorite books, chapter 11. If you can get through Hosea 11 without crying, you're probably dead. And uh, just read Hosea 11 and you'll find out what I mean. But what Hosea was called to do by God is, as a prophetic act, marry a prostitute and say, this is what Yahweh is doing to Israel. She has prostituted herself out among the other gods. She's played the harlot over and over again, and yet Yahweh will chase her down and bring her back. One of my favorite passages, or books rather, in the whole Old Covenant, because this describes even the nature of Christians. We today bow down before idols of all types, and yet God has mercy and redeems us when we repent and, for, and turn. And so this woman in this passage is another type. It's another foreshadowing. And see, so in understanding this reading in that way, we see not only what God was doing in the patriarchs with Abraham sending his servant to get a bride for Isaac, but we also see what Christ was doing in mercy towards this woman and what he has done through his Holy Spirit, inspiring John, the apostle, to write it in such a way as it magnifies the work of God in redemptive history. This passage is not just a narrative event. It's not just a historical event. It is that, but it is also a view on what God has done in saving the world. And so understanding that, we see a great and beautiful glory 
in God's mercy. It's not enough that we just understand Jesus talks to this woman and engages her on a physical or just a kind of one-on-one level. He's doing something much greater in demonstrating his love. Jesus talks to her, as we said, this was an act of his mercy, and he engages her in a conversation, and then he offers himself to her. Whereas the servant gave gifts to Rebecca, they were linens, they were gold, they were silver, Jesus Christ is offering himself as the gift to this woman. So he makes this offer to her. He says, if you knew the gift of God, right? The gift of God, there it is. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Last week, we talked about the the necessity of the rebirth, that is the new birth in God. The metaphor for the Christian life is not just new birth, but also it is a living water which is a spiritual nourishment of your soul. And so Jesus is attempting to speak on this level with her, and yet we see over and over again she misses the point, and he's gracious. The woman said to her, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Here she's getting confused. She thinks maybe he's talking about a a spring or a stream, which in the old Uh, in this time period in history, was commonly called living water. In fact, one of the earliest uh, writings uh, post the ending of the canon or closing of the canon was a book called the Didache. And the Didache was some instructions from the apostles. And they describe those who get baptized, they should be baptized in living water. And by that, they're not referring to Christ. They're referring to a stream or a river rather than a pond or a lake because it was more indicative of what was truly going on. They were going through the river of baptism at just like Israel crosses the Jordan. So the woman clearly misses the point, but Jesus doesn't respond in harshness and he appeals again. And we're about to see that she misses it the second time. She even says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Now, what, what she's doing is she's appealing to her religious base, right? She's appealing to her identity as a Samaritan. The Samaritans thought they were more holy than the Israelites. The Israelites thought they were more holy than the Samaritans. They were at war with each other, and she appeals to her identity as a Samaritan. And so she says, are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus doesn't respond to her, but clearly the response is yes, Because before Jacob was, he is, or I am, as he would say if he was speaking. She plainly misses the meaning because she's dead in spirit. Have you ever been so hungry that you don't want to eat? I've been that hungry before. It's this kind of state where your stomach hurts and you think to yourself, man, my stomach really, I'm I'm very hungry, but at the same time, I don't want to eat because it's so painful. It's, you think maybe you've got a stomach ache, but you're actually either hungry or thirsty. This is what is happening to this woman. She is so dead in spirit that she doesn't even recognize that she has an appetite for spiritual water that is living water. She doesn't even recognize it to notice when he's speaking about it plainly, and she misses his point again. Christ isn't speaking in a metaphor. It's, 
it's an error when you start to learn topology and, and metaphor and, and all of these literary analysis tools. It's an error to then say Jesus is not speaking of a true living water in a spiritual reality sense, but rather he's just making an analogy. It's just a metaphor. And it's and and he's by using those metaphors, he's appealing to something greater. But that's not the way language works. Whenever you use a metaphor, you are not appealing to something greater than the reality that you're speaking of. You're appealing to something less. Jesus is saying that the water that he has, the spiritual resource, the spiritual nourishment, the joy, the peace, the grace that only comes from the Father, he has access to that. And even himself is that for us. And so he appeals not to something greater, as if the physical thirst was greater than a spiritual thirst, but rather so that she could kind of see over the edge into a place that she's never been and understand what he's truly offering her in encounter with God. The spiritual thirst that you have is more real than your natural thirst, and the deadness of our souls is why we don't feel that. We are so used to attending to every physical appetite, and yet what Jesus says concerning this thirst that she has and needs satisfied is more important than anything you could attempt to quench or quench in the natural. Remember, Jesus just went on a 20-mile journey from Jerusalem, and though he probably took some water with him, they, it's a 20-mile journey. It's a hike. It's, it's a trek. They probably were carrying some stuff with them. He's extremely thirsty. And he says to her, if you knew what was really going on, you would ask me for water. What does that imply? She is thirsty now. She has been wandering around looking for a well, and there has been nothing because Jesus Christ is Jacob's well. He is the source of water and faith and life for the patriarchs. Not only that, all of human history and all of humanity. Christ is certainly greater than Jacob. He didn't simply dig a well. She's appealing to history, and she doesn't recognize that this is the uncreated, eternally existent God in the flesh standing before her. And so she, she misses it. She's blind to the spiritual reality that's happening in front of her. But Jesus, and this is wonderful for you and me, because we do this all the time. We're like the woman at the well. We miss the point. He does not respond in condemnation but rather he makes a second pass. He tries again. Everyone who drinks of this water, verse 13, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing the Father and the one whom he sent. That's Jesus in the book of John. So what he's saying is when you drink from the stream of Christ, that water stays in you. It doesn't dissipate. It doesn't get wasted. And so that water becomes for you a stream of life. It becomes a river of living water in your innermost being. That's the exact same thing that he uh, uh, offers when he's uh, later on at the, at the Festival of Booths, a few, I think it's a year from now in the gospel timeline. And so his offer to her is a permanent existing relationship in which she knows the Father and the one whom he sent, which is Jesus Christ. This river of living water for her will become a greater river, as we're going to see when she testifies. 
she again misses his intention, or so it seems. There's there's a a uh, little bit of a truth here that's not really in the text directly, but it happened. It shows up in just a few verses at the end of the chapter. She says to him, "Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty." And and how do we know she's thinking on a plain level? Because she says, "Nor will I have to come here to draw water." <laughs> she didn't get it. She didn't get it. Maybe she got it. The disciples are just like this woman. They're not a better class, as if you, you know, just hanging around Jesus automatically makes you spiritual. Uh, they, they miss this thing too, but they weren't at that event. And so he, he tells them another uh, parable, uh, or rather another metaphor, so that they would understand what's really going on. Jesus, again, remember, he just walked a 20-mile journey. Maybe he, it, it's not clear if any water was actually drawn in that situation. Certainly not, a, uh, uh, certainly not explicit. So maybe he didn't even get a drink, but he's at least hungry. And so they're trying to attend to him. They're trying to take care of him as if he doesn't know how to take care of himself. And they're trying to convince him he should eat. And so they, they come and say, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And here they're thinking on a natural level. They think he's got some sort of like crumbs or like a cheese pouch in his bag. Uh, if you've ever read Lord of the Rings, maybe he's got that lamza bread or what was it called? Lamas bread? It's 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 a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing, but Jesus is not speaking of natural food. He's not talking about like, yeah. Uh, you know, I had a, a, a string cheese in my, you know, pouch and also some crackers. I have food that I brought with me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that his food is a spiritual food, and that is more important than his physical food. This is not Gnosticism. This is rightly understanding the reality of spiritual things. You don't ignore the body in order to achieve things in the spirit, but you don't neglect the spirit and attend to the needs of the flesh. That is not at all what Christianity is about. So Jesus says, I have food that you do not know about. They're ignorant of this. So the disciples say, has anyone brought him something to eat? They thought maybe he knew someone in this town or went to Wendy's or something. Uh, No, not at all. Jesus says in the next verse, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What is the will of him who sent me? Remember, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. So what the Father was doing in this passage is he was calling a Samaritan woman. And Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, perceives the Father's action and acts accordingly. And he says his food, what is his real appetite, is to do the will of God. The disciples are just like this other woman, but Jesus loves righteousness. Isn't righteousness simply defined as the doing of the will of God? being in accordance with God's word, with God's law. Jesus does the will of God, and that for him is his food. Jesus has two things that are, that are important to see here. He rightly has ordered appetites. His appetite for food is not greater than his appetite for fellowship with God. Now, you and I have an appetite for fellowship with God, but I would say probably if you made a a right estimation or a a just estimation of your life, oftentimes those appetites are not ordered properly. And you attend to and operate in the flesh more often than in the spirit. You don't walk according to the spirit 
as you ought. And yet there's grace for that. But not only does Jesus have the appetites ordered correctly, he also receives the benefit from the food. It's not enough for you to eat a meal and then afterwards say, that was terrible, I hated this, now I feel gross. You know, like if you go to certain restaurants, uh, I love Five Guys and I hate Five Guys. Because when I go and I eat, I'm satisfied and then I hate myself. You know, it's, it's like, I just went through this and what have I done? It's a horrible thing. It's not, it's not appropriate to eat and then have it not benefit you. It would be as if you, you know, if you ate a pound of sand, it wouldn't have any nutritional benefit and you would die. So it's not, a, it's not okay to just eat something in the spiritual realm, take in some sort of movie or, or uh, some sort of, you know, book or fantasy land or go off and whatever, whatever you want to talk about, spiritual encounters. It's not enough to have some sort of spiritual encounter unless it is true food, unless it's righteous. And so you see people going after every sort of spiritual need, and yet they're looking at things and they're encountering with things that are the spiritual equivalent of worse than five guys. And so Jesus is not only, not only does he have rightly ordered appetites, he knows where to get that appetite met. That's important for you. You have appetites and you need to find out how to meet them rightly. You have appetites. And so Jesus demonstrates what it means to walk as a faithful man, as a faithful human. Jesus is not uh, accessing his divinity in order to cheat around the requirement of fulfilling the law, of being a true Israelite, of walking in righteousness before the, before the Father. Jesus is operating filled with the Holy Spirit as a human being. And so he demonstrates the righteous, li- uh, the righteous life. So Jesus describes the nature of his desire as being to do the Father's will and then begins to tell the disciples a little bit about harvesting, which we won't cover in detail. But I want to really quickly, as we end, I want to come back to this idea that the woman at the well missed it. And I want to submit that even though the text looks like she missed it and her responses seem to indicate that she was still thinking on a natural level, what happens from her testimony is a fulfillment of that prophecy that Bethuel and Laban gave to Rebekah, likewise also what Jesus said concerning the river of living water, which would be in her. What happens is she goes and tells these people in the town what took place. Jesus describes a particular hidden sin in her life, a thing that she kept in the darkness, and then, uh, although not recorded, it seems to indicate that Jesus went on to tell her everything else that she had done in such a way that she says, he told me everything. He told me everything that I ever did, verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. What she has done in spreading her testimony created an effect in the people around her. She says that this man told me everything I ever did, everything that every sin that I had, he knew. Isn't that what God uh, knows about your life? Every sin that you've ever committed, every right motive, every wrong motive. One of my favorite parts in the Psalms is when uh, the psalmist says that, you know my lying down and you know my rising. You know when I go to sleep and when I wake, you know when I walk and when I fall. Jesus Christ, accessing a word of knowledge through the Holy Spirit, knows everything about this woman and tells her and yet offers her himself. That is unthinkable. 
We serve a God. We have seen a salvation from on high, which has come to us and exposed all of the darkness in our life and yet offers us grace. That's amazing. Plainly stating everything that this woman has ever done sinfully and then saying, and yet for you, I would be eternal life. I would be living water for you. That's what this woman has an encounter of. And then she tells that testimony to the people in her town. Her testimony concerning what Christ has done in her life spread the fame of Christ. She told what took place and these other people heard it and these other people respond in faith and these people uh, turn and they appeal to Jesus Christ to stay with them. And then they hear the word for themselves. If someone wants to get the kids, we're going to close in a minute. What they say concerning these, these last two verses in this chapter are some of my most favorite verses in all of the Gospel of John, at least. Look at what they say. Verse 41, verse 42. And many more believed because of his word. That is, Jesus was asked to come and then he went and preached. He did the exact same thing. He offered himself as living water to the whole town. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What I want to show you is plainly that their belief did not change. They believed in her testimony. She said, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He told me everything I ever did. He also told me some minor facts concerning the end of worship in Jerusalem and 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 I didn't understand any of it, but he told me everything I did. And he offered himself to me as a source of spiritual nourishment, as true joy, true peace, true, uh, true fellowship with God. And they believed her. They believed that testimony. That testimony was a presentation of the gospel in essence. And so she gives this presentation through the sh simple sharing of her testimony, and they believe. Notice what it says clearly in the verse. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. They believe. They don't take their belief away, but rather they come to the source, that is the word of God from Christ himself, they, that he is the savior of the world. Spreading the testimony of Christ's work in your life brings others into a place of encounter with Christ. That's what happened when this woman shared her testimony. That's what happens when you share your testimony. When you tell of what Christ has done, his unique and special work in your life, when you describe how you used to be, how you used to live, what you used to be motivated by, when you share that with others, it creates an atmosphere of faith for them in which they then are able to have their eyes opened and their spiritual thirsts quenched. This is what sharing the testimony is all about. And so as we remember this in our time of Lent this year, I want to encourage you that you have a testimony. Maybe your testimony isn't very significant. Maybe you weren't, you know, the pastor's kid who ran away and rebelled. Maybe you weren't the, the teenager who went and, and spent everything. You weren't the prodigal son. That doesn't matter. This woman thought she was righteous, and yet she wasn't. And Jesus Christ became a spring of living water for her. You don't have to have lived a righteous life or not lived a righteous life to have a powerful testimony. 
You have to have an authentic encounter with Christ, and that is a powerful testimony. So as we come to the table, I want to encourage you, I want to charge you to think about how God would use your testimony in the following week, who you could share with or who you could encounter with a, a message of encouragement to just describe to them, you know, I was going through the, a similar thing, and when God finally got a hold of me, he made everything new. A testimony as simple as that can create faith in some of the most hard-to-reach people, like it did in this case. The Samaritans were not ready to receive a Messiah that came from the Jews. They thought a Messiah was going to come from the Samaritans. And they hear this simple testimony and invite him to stay for a few days. And not only that, publicly, as a group, testify that not only was your testimony right, but now we believe because we've heard for ourselves. That's an amazing tra transition. And I want to encourage you as we come to take, place, uh, take our place at the table, this is possible for you. Christ can become for you a stream of living water. If you do not place your faith in Christ, if you have not rejected all forms of approaching him on your own merit, on your own work, then you have not truly drunk from him, and yet he offers himself to you again today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would cause us to see our need for Jesus Christ to be for us a stream of water. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the reality that you have spoken about in your word, that we are desperately thirsty and that we need you in a way that we don't even understand or see. I pray, God, that you would encourage us this week as we uh, experience life with our brothers and sisters and even those who have not turned to you, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would remind us of a time where we could share a simple testimony, a simple word of encouragement that would open up a doorway for people to encounter you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.